Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And uh, this morning we're going to be reflecting upon another name of the Lord Jesus. A name that perhaps um, you've already uh, thought about with these beautiful passages of Scripture that have already been read for us about the love of God. So please join with me as I ask the Lord to help us as we open our hearts to God's Word. And now, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with wonder at what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Remind us of how much you have indeed loved us. I pray, Lord, that the words that I speak and the scriptures that I read would be used of you to produce wonder in our hearts and love for you and praise for what you've done for us in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, there was a mini-series on TV called Downton Abbey. Did any of you watch Downton Abbey? It's a story of a family of aristocrats in England around the turn of the 18th, 19th century, the the 18th to the 19th century, or was it the 19th to the 20th? 19th to the 20th. Um, Last summer, it was made into a feature movie, so it's kind of a recent story. It has an engaging plot that uh, really drew the audience in, and we really got identified with the characters. There was, uh, as in most modern dramas, plenty of unscrupulous behavior, so it's not necessarily a model of how to, uh, to live life. But uh, I mentioned it this morning because uh, as I reflect on the subject of this message, Downton Abbey presents um, what uh, it means to be a servant. And it portrayed being a servant in a positive light. Um, These were uh, butlers, they were maids, they were cooks in the kitchen, and they were all busily engaged in the household of these aristocrats in the abbey, which is the castle, and the surrounding land and little farms that went along with it, they were dedicated employees skillfully performing their assigned tasks. And as these, quote-unquote, servants did their work, they had great pride in their work. They knew how to filter wine before serving it. They created culinary masterpieces with wonderful presentations for the meals. They were loyal and trusted confidants. And even though they were servants, he came away thinking that these, these servants were engaged in a very honorable and appropriate profession. Today we turn to another one of the prophetic passages from Isaiah about Jesus. This one portrays Jesus as a servant. Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in his first coming, he came as a servant. Now, after the resurrection and his exaltation before heaven, we now serve him. But when he came as a babe in Jerusalem, he came as a servant. It's kind of interesting to think about Jesus being a butler. 
or Jesus being a maid, or Jesus being an employee of aristocrats. But you know, that's what he was when he came the first time. He was one who came to serve, to give of himself, to put others first, and to be their servant. As we think about this idea of being a servant in the book of Isaiah, scholars have identified four passages of scripture that are called the servant songs. There's a lot of portraits and prophecies about the coming Messiah in the book of Isaiah, and we've looked at several of them, King, Emmanuel, the four names of the child who was born to us. Well, now in the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, we've got four servant songs, passages that talk about the servant, the Messiah who is the servant. First one is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, where the servant comes to establish his kingdom and to reign in his kingdom. The second one is found in Isaiah 49, 1-7, where the servant becomes the light to the Gentiles. The third one comes in Isaiah 50, verses 4-9, where the servant demonstrates his faithfulness to his mission and accomplishes his mission as the servant of God. And then there's the fourth and longest of the servant songs, which is the one we're going to discuss today, begins in chapter 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 53. And this is where we learn about the servant being the suffering servant. The servant who comes and accomplishes salvation for all through suffering. And as we have learned and been reminded with the lighting of this Advent candle, this is a very important part of our Christmas observance. We've been going through Advent today, uh, thinking about the names of Jesus with our wonderful devotional book, with our banners that are in back telling us about all the names of Jesus. And in my sermons, we've talked about King, Emmanuel, God with us, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The name for today is Suffering Servant. And it begins with the first verse um, of the servant song, uh, in first chapter in chapter 52, verse 13, where Isaiah writes, My servant will act wisely. Right out of, right out of the chute, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. He's fulfilling an honorable and strategic mission on behalf of God. He is God's servant. He was sent by God, and when he came, he came to serve God. Now, chapter 53, or 52, verse 14, I think I did a misprint on our slide. I'm sorry about that. It's chapter 52, the next verse, verse 14, we have the idea of this servant who came, but this identifies him as one who suffers. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This talks about the suffering that that Jesus went through, the servant went through. So much so that his appearance was appalling. Couldn't even recognize him. But I want us to understand that the accomplishment of the servant 
did not come um, in spite of suffering. The suffering was actually the accomplishment of the servant. He accomplished what was accomplished through suffering. Suffering was the means by which he accomplished his mission. And God considered his suffering, and God deemed his suffering sufficient to meet the requirement for the salvation of mankind, which was his assignment. So Jesus came to serve, and he came to serve by suffering. And through his suffering, he accomplished his ministry. Now we know that the servant song here is talking about Jesus. Because Isaiah was looking forward to the passion of Jesus. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8, uh, there was a story of a man from Ethiopia who was traveling in his chariot. And the, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 that he was reading a passage from Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant song. And he was reading out loud and Philip, a disciple of Jesus, happened to be on the road and he called out to this man. He says, hey, do you know what, what it is that you're reading about? Do you understand? And the Ethiopian said, I don't understand what I'm reading about unless someone can tell me what I'm reading about. And so Philip got up in the chariot, opened up the scroll of Isaiah 53 that this Ethiopian was reading, and here's what the Bible says. Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him about Jesus. So we know that this passage that Isaiah was writing about is a prophecy about the passion of Jesus. It's about his arrest, about his unjust trials, about his brutal beatings, about his torturous death on the cross, this suffering, this passion, which was so much more than the tragic death of a good man, as some would have us believe. No, this was the suffering of the Son of God who accomplished our salvation. And that's what it means during the Christmas season. Because before someone can suffer, he's got to have flesh and bones and muscle and blood. Before someone can die, he has to first live. And so Jesus was born in manger of Bethlehem in order for him to begin his journey through suffering in order to accomplish his assignment for God as the servant of the Lord. Prophecy of Simeon, when Jesus was brought to this temple uh, on, on his day of his presentation and dedication of the temple, the prophet Simeon said to Mary, he said, Mary, I've lived to see my Lord, but for you, a sword will pierce your heart. Right at the beginning of his life, it was prophesied that he would suffer. And when the wise men from the east came, they presented him gifts. And traditionally, we understand these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is a spice that was used in burial preparations. Right at the beginning of Jesus' life, Death was stamped on his mission. And that's what we do while we remember death at the Christmas season. Because 
The death of Jesus is an expression of God's love. And we've already read the passage in, that, in Romans chapter, uh, in, in, in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. And in, Rome, in John chapter 15, that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life. And in Romans chapter 5, which says that God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the death of Jesus, the suffering servant, is the highest expression of the love of God. And so this morning... Let's review some pictures of God's love presented for us in this fourth servant song and see how we might be encouraged and inspired by the life and death of the suffering servant who was born in the manger of Bethlehem. Let's look at three pictures of the ministry of the suffering servant. First, picture with us how out of death Jesus gave us Life. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that God has given us the ability to be joined with or united with Jesus in his resurrection by faith. The New Testament tells us that when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are placed in Christ. Remember that phrase? All over the New Testament, we are in Christ. And as we are in Christ, we are joined with him in his death, and we are raised with him to newness of life. That's the wonderful symbolism of water baptism that we practice as evangelicals. When we put a person under the water, we're uniting with Jesus in his death. And when we come out of the water, it's a symbol, excuse me, a symbol that we are raised with him to newness of life. So we are united with Jesus. We are in Christ. And as we are in Christ, uh, his death then becomes our life. Chapter 52, verse 13, the beginning of the servant song, summarizes life as Jesus gave it to us. He says, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. You see, the life of the servant is a, is a life of life. Right out of the chute. We are in Christ and we are told that Jesus is going to be exalted. He is going to be raised. He's going to be highly exalted. So much so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. On the earth. Under the earth. Above the earth. That what? Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's life. So as much as we think about and are going to see the portrait of a suffering servant, when he suffered and died, remember, he suffered and died in order to demonstrate a life that we can then enjoy in. So Isaiah composes three death-to-life cycles in this passage. So let's look at them. Three death-to-life cycles. First, from death, to ruling the nations. Chapter 52, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Death. What comes out of that? Verse 15. 
so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. So out of his death comes the reign, the universal reign over the nations on this earth. That's the first picture of life coming out of death. The second picture from death to resurrection is chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, death. Out of that death comes life. Verse 10, the second half. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Resurrection is prophesied in Isaiah 53. Out of his death comes life. And there's one more picture of death and life portrait. And that's from death to providing salvation for all his people. Verse 11 of chapter 53. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and he will be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12 is life. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so we've got these three pictures. We've got these three pictures of Jesus dying, rising into life, and it's a picture of how life became ours through his death. And what does this all mean? It's found in verse 11. Very important part. It says, By his knowledge, my, tr- my righteous servant will justify many. He will justify many. Now, we often turn off preachers when they use big words like justification. <laughs> um, it's just one of those important words, and it's a theological word. But I'd like to ask you to give me your attention for just a moment, and I'd like to give you a simple explanation of what it means to be justified by the death and life of Jesus. Because it's one of the central accomplishments by which we ourselves experience new life. Justification is one coin with two sides. One coin with two sides. The two sides of the coin are forgiveness on one side and righteousness on the other. Because of the suffering and death of Jesus, the penalty for sin is paid and God counts us forgiven. That's one side. On the other side of the coin, because of the resurrection of Jesus, his perfect life is ours and God counts us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. We are forgiven and we are counted righteous. Here's one way to think about it. Let's say that we all have a checking account in God's bank. Okay, the, the first kingdom bank of heaven. Okay, 
And if we have a checking account in God's bank, what do you think the balance is going to be? (laughs) The balance is going to be negative, isn't it? Because the wages of sin is death, and death causes us to have a debt to God. So in our checking account in God's heavenly bank, our checking account is overdrawn because we are in debt to God. And of course, when we're in debt in a checking account in a bank, there's consequences, right? They're going to come after you and they're going to, if you can't pay, they're going to have to find a different way to pay. Well, let's say now that since we have our checking account in heaven that we're in debt with, then God comes and he justifies us. He gives us forgiveness of sins and he gives us a deposit of righteousness. So we take this coin and we go to the bank and we say, you know what? I've got a new coin that I'm going to deposit in my checking account. One half of the coin pays all the debts. So now the balance is zero. But wait a minute. That's really not everything that justification says because God now deems us righteous because of the life of Jesus. So now not only are our debts forgiven, we now have a positive balance in God's bank's checking account. And so now we have a positive balance, spiritually speaking, that we can enjoy. We now are the beneficiaries of all the spiritual blessings that this positive bank account balance gives us. Lots of spiritual capital to enjoy God's blessings. We are adopted in God's forever family. We have access to the throne of grace for answered prayer. We have the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit who walks alongside of us in life. And we have a local church with other believers who also have a checking account with a positive balance. And so we as a local church now can serve one another and we can love one another and we can, we can praise God together out of the positive balance in our spiritual checking account because we've deposited the coin of justification. Two sides. Forgiveness and the declaration of righteousness. His death meant the required payment for forgiveness, and his life signified the required payment was accepted. And now God smiles on us out of love because of what the servant has given to us, life out of death. There's another picture that's found in this servant song, and that is out of his injustice, He demonstrates justice. Out of his injustice, he demonstrated justice. I think one of the cries of our culture these days is a cry for justice. And I think rightly so, because there's real injustice in this world. There's bullies who just bully people, and they get away with it, and it's not right. The powerful prey on the weak. Those in authority use their authority for their own personal gain and then exploit other people. It's, it's often used as an, as an attempt to discredit Christianity by saying that the death of Jesus was unjust. And people say that, well, for Jesus, for one person to pay the penalty for everyone else, Jesus was innocent and he was pure, yet he died and paid the penalty for everybody. That's not just. 
it is, it is accused the Christians that Jesus is an innocent victim exploited by the powerful God in order to satisfy his appetite for the payment of debt to him, which is not just. So a critic who's a, a non-Christian can accuse us of following after an unjust God, if that picture were true. But I would suggest it is not true. It looks like it's true. Look at verse chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Injustice. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Well, that's not right. I mean, we shouldn't be attracted to people because of beauty. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, but... That's not right. Why would appearance be important? That's, it's, it's not just. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one for whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. We judged him. We looked at him, and we said, You're not worthy of being accepted as a human being. That's injustice. Let's continue to look, verses 7, 8, and 9. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Well, that's not right. You're supposed to be given a fair trial. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression, and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one. That's not right. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. A Christian critic could look at this and say, Your faith is based on an injustice. Look at this, this innocent servant who suffered all this stuff. It's just not just. And that could be a criticism of our faith. It could be suggested that Jesus was an unwilling victim of a harsh and offended God. And if we were to go along with that, Jesus' suffering would be analyzed like this. Critics would say, Jesus offered himself as an offering for our sins, the loving and selfless thing to do, which would be an act of love that would wrestle forgiveness from an unwilling God who was reluctant to give, who was so offended that he had folded his arms as if there was no way he would ever be satisfied. But since this innocent Jesus suffered this unjust death, God had no choice but to forgive. Because of the suffering and death of Jesus, God had to forgive. So Jesus prevailed on the Father. That's what the critics would say. Boy, is that so far from the truth. Because according to that analysis, the Father and Son are seen opposing one another. 
The son persuades a reluctant father. The father punishes a victimized and innocent son. Boy, is that not the truth. But our critics don't don't look far enough into what really happened in this transaction. Because this transaction, far from being unjust, actually was an expression of justice. Look at verse 8. The second half of verse 8. This entire enterprise demonstrated justice because his suffering and death had a divine purpose. There was a divine purpose in the death of Jesus. His suffering accomplished a plan. And that plan demonstrated justice. Because an offense was committed, offense that had to be satisfied, but, it, but that, that offense was satisfied justly. Really? Justly? I thought we just looked at all these passages and said that everything that happened to Jesus was unjust. Here's the difference. Jesus willingly entered into his role as a suffering servant out of love. He volunteered for it. Before the foundations of the earth, God the Father and God the Son got together and devised a plan that both were eternally vested in accomplishing. And they both entered into it with determination and love. And together, they accomplished the incarnation of the Son of God in the womb of Mary, the birth in a manger. Together they accomplished the life of Jesus, perfect life. Together they accomplished the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Together God offered himself in Christ. See, the sufferings of the servant were just because both the Father and the Son willingly, lovingly planned And both successfully accomplished the way to satisfy the requirements of the law. And when they satisfied the requirements of the law, God was just and he was seen to be just. Because together the Father and the Son willingly, lovingly met the requirements of a just law. And so you see, out of his death came a just expression of love. And the willing initiative of both happened for the transgression, because of the transgression of his people. True, Jesus suffered for something he did not know, but he did it willingly. The Father did it willingly out of love. For you and for me. And there's a third expression of servanthood and love. And that is, when we face condemnation, he became our substitute. Now, what's a substitute? Well, several in our church are substitute teachers. That means that you serve as teachers in place of the long-term teacher who's not able to be there. So you go as that teacher's substitute. 
uh, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Gene Swanstrom, who is our, our former district superintendent, is going to come and speak for me because I'm going to be gone next Sunday. He's going to be my substitute. Actually, I am serving our church as the substitute pastor, substituting for Pastor Niall, our former pastor, and substituting for our future pastor, who we haven't identified yet. But I'm the substitute pastor. As a substitute, I perform the role of another person while not being that person in that role, performing all the responsibilities of the, as a substitute, receiving all the benefits that accompany that service, and experience all the challenges and burdens that accompany that role. The substitute experiences all that another might experience while that other is free from those experiences. And this idea of substitute is found in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Look at the words of substitution in these verses. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced as our substitute for our transgressions. He was crushed as our substitute for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, as our substitute, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord, as our substitute, laid on him the iniquity of us all. We deserve to be condemned for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for the selfish ambition through which we stray and go our own way and say, God, I know better than you. And because of that, we deserve to be condemned. But oh no, as because of the death and life of Jesus, he bore our punishment. He bore our condemnation. And literally, the weight and condemnation of us was taken off of our shoulders and literally laid on him as our substitute. You see, sin is man substituting himself for God. Love is God substituting himself for man. And that's the joy of understanding the suffering servant. Paul gives us quite a discussion about the wonder of being delivered from condemnation by Jesus. He says in Romans 8, who is the one who condemns? If we're in Christ, we can ask that question. Who's going to condemn me? Who's going to condemn you if you're in Christ? Paul says, no one. (laughs) No one can condemn you. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because of the ministry of the suffering servant. That's the portrait that Isaiah gives us. And it was fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. I leave you with this story from John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was also in progress. and The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He left his place in heaven took off his outer clothing, humbled himself, emptied himself, and put on a towel around his waist, wrapped himself in human flesh. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped up around him cross. Then he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, no, you don't realize now what I'm about to do, but later you will. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, the resurrection, and returned to his place, the ascension. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, loved us to death. He rose to newness of life to give us the opportunity to deny ourselves to pick pick up our cross and to follow him and being a servant to one another and to our world. May we take that challenge into our observance of Christmas. Father in heaven, I pray that you would reveal to us opportunities to serve. Help us to realize that It's a great honor to be a servant because that's what you were. We are never more like Jesus than when we are serving. 
And there's never greater joy than to serve in his name. Thank you, Lord, for this fourth servant song that tells us that Jesus was the suffering servant, but that through his suffering, he came to give us life. And because of that life, we walk with you. Thank you again for what you've done for us in Jesus. May his example envelop us in our lives and give us motivation to serve you with self-sacrificial love as you and Jesus did for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.